I was in Honduras uh, around the time of the coup in 2009, the, the coup d'etat, um, which overthrew a project to bring participatory democracy to Honduras. And on the day where Hondurans were going to have uh, the first referendum of their life, the first time that Hondurans are going to be asked to vote on something other than the name of the president or, or deputy or um, sorry, congressperson that's going to um, represent them. And it was on that day that instead of waking up to ballot boxes, they woke up to see soldiers and find out that their elected president was in his pajamas on the runway in Costa Rica and he had been kidnapped by the military. So I started covering that for the Real News Network. Um, that process went on for months uh, of drama, the daily um, protests, a, the rise in organization of a national movement that the country had never seen that had representation from every profession and region and identity in the country, whether it be you know, uh, feminist movements to um, black uh, movements uh, to indigenous movements to the, the taxi drivers. And everybody was under the same, all the organized groups in the country were under the same tent basically for the first time in history to defend this project of rewriting the constitution through a constitutional assembly, which is what was at stake in this referendum. So the, the coup came as a way of stopping that process and at the same time getting rid of a, of a popular uh, progressive president in the process as well. And, um, and so the resistance to the coup was this, this beautiful thing that I'd really never seen anywhere else I'd been, that level of, of national kind of unity and, and a goal um, wanting to move towards the future up against a, a project that was meant to keep things in one of the most unequal countries in the world exactly as they've been. Um, and so that was gone for months, and then there was this horrible, horrible um, fraudulent election that took place uh, November 2009, you know, four or five months after the coup, um, and it put in place uh, a new president, but it was the same coup project. And in fact, the only candidate who was running in that election, who was against the coup, couldn't even have events because uh, the military and police would, would attack his events. They killed a man at one of his events. They broke his wrist. His name was uh, Carlos Acheres. And he actually ended up um, denouncing his candidature. So we, we never, we don't even, and, and the day of the election, I mean, there was no electoral campaign. The day of the elections, the military had announced that they would, the same military, you know, that did the coup is transporting the ballot boxes and running the logistics of the election. And they announced that, you know, no, um, that anybody who's seen promoting anything against the elections will face up to 60 years in prison for advocating terrorism and a whole bunch of crazy things are happening. And all the major election observers in, in the world, whether it be the UN, the OAS, uh, the European Union, and the Carter Center, they all say, we're not going to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. We're not going to observe it. The elections go ahead anyways. Nobody's out there voting. And uh, the coup regime's electoral tribunal comes out and says, oh, yeah, 70%, 65%, all these numbers all over the place, super high participation numbers that the country's never seen before. And the United States and Canada and Europe and these places uh, accept it and say, oh, this represents you know, the end of the coup and democracy is back in Honduras. And most Latin American governments rejected it. Um, in this situation, the daily protests kind of came to an end. People were really distraught. Uh, it looked like um, that the coup had succeeded. And it was in that moment, just about 10 days after that farce, that, that fraudulent election, um, that news arrived that the farmers, uh, campesinos, agricultural workers, landless farmers, 
um, in the Iguan Valley, which is kind of an, a remote area, but one of the most fertile regions in Central America, at least, um, that the plantations of the most, arguably the most powerful man in the country, definitely the largest landowner in the country, Miguel Fagose, had been taken over by 2,000 families of agricultural workers. Um, and they had taken over his palm oil plantations. So, you know, very, very profitable plantations and 4,000 hectares of them. And so I went and I ended up being the first uh, journalist to arrive in the new occupations. Um, and from then on, it just sort of, I was also at a stage personally where I, I wanted to work on longer form, more storytelling, less just the new daily news. Um, and and they were kind of um, excited to have to have a storyteller, particularly an international storyteller, because international attention is often one of the only forms of protection that a movement can have in a place like Honduras, where um, there's pretty much impunity for any kind of political violence. So they were taking a big risk, and, and I think it, it was just a really great partnership. I was inspired by their story and, and, and wanted to help get it out, you know, as, as a mission for my life at that time. And they, you know, could use that international attention as a form of protection. Well, there's a number of things that I'd like to ask about between uh, the actual Aguan Valley itself, the fact that Miguel Facuse, the large landowner, has just passed away and what might be happening. But going back to the fact that this was initiated after the coup and now it's been six years, a lot of people might say, well, it's over, it's done, we've got to move on. What, what do people say? What, what would you say in that film about that? Yeah, see, this is the thing is that we, we, and I think it has to do a lot with how we're taught history, is that we're, we're taught a lot about dates and, uh, and the names of people. And so people will often look at a coup d'etat as something that happened against Manuel Celaya on the day of June 28, 2009, when really that's just kind of a flashpoint for a larger project. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a project that goes under many different names, depending on who you're talking to, neoliberal tends to be the one that gets thrown around the most. But just the idea that, that the decisions in the country um, should be made, including about how the land is used, should be made by the people who have the most money and the people who, who make the investments. And, uh, and so that's, that's particularly that's the, the economics and the politics of, that, they're, that they're looking for. And, and so when you watch this film, which is filmed over four years, you'll see how... The coup was just one moment. You know, there was, and it, the film doesn't even, it's, the film starts with the coup. It doesn't even talk about all the things that happened before the coup. And, and I think uh, one way we could think about this, you know, in terms of our language, is maybe borrow a word from Spanish, which is, as you'll hear often in Honduras, which is golpismo. Um, and that's, it's, it's like an ideology, it's a way of acting. Uh, golpe means coup. Um, and so, golpe sales coup d'etat. So, we don't have the word coupism to describe the mindset of the people that are willing to use the military to overthrow an elected government, to stop a popular referendum, to stop a rewriting of a constitution, that in 30 years of under that constitution, which was written in the U.S. Embassy in 1981, um, in 30 years of electoral democracy leading up to the coup, more or less, Hondurans had not seen any of the problems that they were hoping to be addressed through democracy addressed um, by any you know, numerical measure or talking to people um, life had gotten worse in Honduras over 30 years of electoral democracy. Meanwhile, a bunch of people in Honduras, Miguel Facuse at the top of that list, had gotten extremely wealthy during the period of, of electoral democracy. So the, the coup came as a way of continuing that project. And that is an ongoing struggle. And we've seen 
in many of the things that the government that inherited the coup, that supported the coup and inherited the coup of Juan Orlando Hernandez, that's in power now, they're pushing this model cities thing, which uh, is essentially a project to cut up, you know, 30 square kilometer or more chunks of Honduras and give that land over to international investors to write their own constitution. Um, and so this that would be completely outside of the Honduran constitution and often involve foreign security forces. Um, there's, there's different proposals that are up in the air. They're trying to go ahead with this. They've already um, altered the constitution. When the Supreme Court, the same Supreme Court that supported the coup, I'm just trying to illustrate how this is an ongoing process. The same Supreme Court that supported the coup said that, okay, this is too far. We can't, you can't hand over you know, huge chunks of the territory over to international investors outside of our jurisdiction, outside of the jurisdiction of the Constitution of Honduras. And this government of Juan Hernandez got rid of all the Supreme Court justices that were against him illegally and, and put in new ones. So this is Gortismo. This is the mindset of we are going to keep handing over more and more power over how things happen and how things work and how decisions are made over to the wealthiest people in the country and even outside of the country. And anybody who gets in our way, we're just going to get rid of them. Um, either through a coup, like happened to Salai, or happened to these Supreme Court justices, or by killing them, or by using our media to defame them. It's this, it's this mindset of, of we'll use whatever means possible to achieve this goal of, uh, of this neoliberal project. Was there any national reaction within Honduras or international reaction from different organizations, such as the Organization of American States, when the Supreme Court justices were effectively deposed? I'm definitely not the, the, the expert on, on that particular event. Um, but, yeah, there was there's certainly, you know, declarations were made and, and, and things like this. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the question is how serious are they when they don't actually affect any of the ongoing relationship? So what I mean by that is the different kinds of aid that go to Honduras, the different kinds of trade relationships. Um, and, and so whenever, if there's no actual threat, to touching any of those things, then then nothing changes. Um, then then it's it's pretty peaceful. I mean, you can put out as many reports as you want, um, and they're not going to make necessarily the news even in in the United States. I'm sure many of the people listening to this didn't hear about this, what happened with the Supreme Court, um, and and that's not our fault, you know. But the the what I mean by this is. Is that yeah? Is, is that we we really need? It's really difficult to imagine after the coup and after having lived all this and, and or observed all this and lived some of it. It's really hard to imagine a fundamental change happening in a place like Central America without there being fundamental change in a place like the United States first. What is it that the people that are working on this resistance are hoping for? If they certainly can't change the United States, I mean, how? Where is this? What are the goals of this movement? The resistance has gone through various ways. It's gone. It's had its, its ups and downs, and and right now it's actually um, in an, another exciting moment. And this moment is brought on by a really terrifying scandal, um, which just came out, or that the the proof of which was just released and admitted to, is that hundreds of millions of dollars, at least three hundred million dollars, was stolen by the National Party, and which is the party that inherited the coup that's in power right now. Um, and its donors and, and various people linked to the party um, were stolen from the Social Security Fund of Honduras, which was already um, had been completely pilfered uh, as much as it could be and was already, they were talking about privatization because it had no money left and 
they're going to privatize Social Security. And, and there's thousands of people um, have died. And there's a, some st- a study that came out recently and showed, I forget what it was, over 2,000 people in Honduras um, that have died because they weren't able to get the medical attention that they thought they should be getting because of their Social, social Security benefits. And, and, in, and then at the same time, we find out that over the last few years that these hundreds of millions of dollars have been, you know, through overbilling and, and different ways has been taken out of it. Much of that went to fund Juan Orlando Hernandez's uh, election campaign in 2013. Um, and so there's a movement now calling for his uh, renunciation, and it's and it's often it's being led in large part by a generation that was <laughs> almost too young to participate in the coup resistance. Um, it's being led by students and, and university people and, and online, um, and uh, they're, they're kind of using the terminology of the Spanish movement, uh, los indignados, um, you know, the the, the angry ones. Um, and they're having weekly torch marches throughout the country that are bringing out tens and tens of thousands of people with torches marching at night, uh, which is actually, I don't know the whole history of that tactic, but I know it was one that was used actually by um, Fidel um, when he was a lawyer before joining the, or, or forming the guerrilla movement. When he was a, a lawyer in Havana, he would organize these torch, this march of the torches to call for Batista to step down. As for where that where that's headed and whether or not it's going to have an effect, I have no idea. But it, it is interesting to watch how the different tactics can bring up a whole like just, this is just a new tactic. This is just a new scandal and a new tactic. Is we're going to we're going to carry torches and it's amazing to see how just that will revive the national movement again. And you can tell that 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 the, the demand is still there and it's it, the movement is still there even though it it changes name and it changes tactics and it changes. It's demands and stuff like that, but it's like people are so quick to organize. It's it's incredible. Like the network is is very much alive. I want to let the listeners know you're listening to Jesse Freeman, who is the director of a new film, Resistencia, the Fight for the Aguan Valley, a Montreal-based filmmaker. There's very little about Honduras in the news, and um, for example, our KJNU reporter Irene Rodriguez is one of the few people that I hear news coming out on Honduras from. As a as a freelance reporter, what kind of um, have you been trying to get this out, this story in the different networks with which you've worked? Yeah, um, it's unfortunate. When I was trying to get this film onto Canadian national television, I had a meeting with a commissioning editor, and he said, um, "This was when I had like a five-minute kind of trailer. This was back in 2012." And he said, wow, this story looks really compelling and really amazing. And if it was happening in Iran, I would buy it immediately. But unfortunately, nobody cares about Honduras. And my first reaction was I wanted to strangle this man. But then, you know, I actually was thankful that he, that he told me what he was really thinking and what I think a lot of people were thinking. And, and these things are self-fulfilling prophecies, um, you know, the the idea that we wouldn't care about what's happening in Honduras, but we would care about something that's happening in Iran, um, that seems to be in the mind of at least this editor and a lot of people that I've that I've been interested in. If that's the case, it's only because people are being told over and over and over again what may or may not be happening in Iran, you know, and and so it, it is it is a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. I think I think um, stories when told right bring out the humanity in everybody. And it's 
it's really frustrating to see how the Honduran story is not told right. I mean, um, and primarily in the way that it doesn't treat the Honduran people as 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 um, as subjects, you know, as, as as the people that are carrying out as agents of their own of their own reality. So you'll see when all the reporting on the coup, I mean, it was boring. It was it was it described this this power struggle over a constitutional law issue between two men like you know Manuel Salaya and Roberto Micheletti and nobody knows who these guys are so why do I care? And it said you know the people in the street were either Salaya followers or even Chavez followers, which both at some level are laughable because if you go and talk to anybody in the street, you will realize that they have very good reasons why they're in the street either for things that are happening to them. Uh, the lack of opportunity that they have in their life, or the lack of opportunity that their neighbors have, or other people in their city, or other people in their country, and they're out in solidarity with, with, uh, with those people. Or I mean, there's everybody had their own reasons for being out there, and all those reasons came together to form a movement to rewrite a constitution that would enshrine some of these rights that weren't being respected in Honduras, and that would help create the basis for a more participatory democracy. And that's the project that was taken down with the coup, and none, very little of the coverage of the coup dealt with that which was the core issue you know how this was how this was uh, this had come to attack a popular project not just a constitutional law issue and a struggle for power between two ambitious men um and so i think i think part of the reason why we don't hear of a place like honduras is that the there's there's not enough time given to it to begin with so people aren't um journalists or whoever else is covering the story uh don't get to the root of the story and don't get to the humanity of the people involved. Well, Honduras is a, a small country that has been uh, overexploited and oppressed for centuries, really, if you, if you look at the history probably since um, the invasion 500 years ago. Um, what, how, how much support is there currently for uh, the, the project that the project of resistance, the project of having a different view of how things can be set up in a country like Honduras to benefit the majority of the people. How much support is there in Honduras? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to gauge because uh, there's no, you know, popular opinion polling that you can actually trust in things like Honduras. But, you, I mean, you can look at the numbers of people in the street. I mean, the, when Salaya came back in 2011 after being in exile for two years, um, he, the gathering of, of people is, is widely considered to be, without a doubt, the largest gathering of people in, in the history of the country. Um, you can actually look at, it's interesting, um, probably the people that, if anybody has good information on what people are thinking of Honduras, it's the largest companies that have massive marketing budgets because they have to do all kinds of focus groups and, and things like this. And, and if you look at the cell phone companies, which um, in, a, in, in Central America would be there with the soft drink companies in terms of the, the, the consumer good companies that are, have the largest marketing budgets. And two of the three cell phone companies, including one owned by Carlos Slim, the richest man in the world, changed their marketing after the coup. Um, I, uh, so the, the, the project to rewrite the Constitution was called the Cuarta Urna, which is that you're going to have a fourth ballot box. At the thing. The fourth ballot box is going to be whether or not you want to write another Constitution. The first three are mayor, uh, congressperson, and, and president. And... Um, and so the, the sign for the Cuartaurna was, was like Salaya or whoever else would put up their hand with four fingers. And that was like the symbol for the Cuartaurna. Digicel, the cell phone company, came out immediately following the coup with 
Guadalupe Saldo, which was, you know, like four times uh, your credits uh, if you sign up today type thing. And all their advertising was people, you know, beautiful young people staying there and everybody's wearing red. And then uh, Claro is the company owned by Carlos Slim. Um, they went even further. They had these, usually in, in all publicity, all advertising in, in, in Central America that I've seen, you see people that are typically much whiter than the average person in the country, beautiful young people, and it's like close-ups on their faces and some of this. Claro's advertising became these street shots of people in the street with their fists in the air, and it would say, cero conformismo, unete al movimiento, like, uh, you know, no conformism, everybody joined the movement, and it was like people wearing red and people with faces representing all the country, black people, indigenous people, and, you know, all with their fists up saying, like, join the movement, join Claro, and get, you know, $40 off your plan or whatever. So it was interesting to see how even the advertising in the country shifted. It's really hard to tell how popular things are in Honduras. There hasn't been a legitimate election. There's no way to do polling, really, because... Most people don't have home phone lines. There's no phone book for cell phones. And you can't really go in. A lot of the neighborhoods, you can't go into the rich neighborhoods and you can't go into the poor neighborhoods. Or it's difficult to go into the poor neighborhoods because it's violent. People don't want to go in there. They're, they're scared of going into those neighborhoods often. And um, the, the richer neighborhoods are gated. So you can't really do door-to-door polling either. So it's really difficult to know. A lot of people might just throw up their hands and say, gosh, this situation is so complicated, it's so messed up, there's nothing I can do. As a an outside journalist, but someone who's intimately involved with the Aguan Valley and with Honduras, what do you recommend that people understand or, or do as far as looking at what the situation is and what could be a move towards more justice? I think people should do whatever they're passionate about. I think this I think if you're the kind of person who wants to work hand-in-hand in in solidarity with a specific movement on the ground in Honduras, then then I think you you could find a way to do that. If you're somebody who who is really inspired by the idea of of pushing for a country with a less aggressive and uh, imposing foreign policy, then there's groups like School of America's Watch. You know, does fantastic work. And they have branches all over the country, and, and if they don't have one where you are, then you can help organize one. Um, if you're into film, like I am, you know, or organize a, a festival, organize uh, screenings, and get. I think documentaries are really great ways to get more complex ideas out, you know, so people can sit down for an hour, an hour and a half, and, and, and think about something, and then have a discussion afterwards. If you're somebody who want, who, you know, for me, I'll quote actually a great Honduran filmmaker named Oscar Estrada, who was doing a tour uh, with his film El Porvenir. In, in, I was at a screening of his in Philadelphia, and somebody asked him, you know, what can we do? And, he, and at the time that he was doing the tour, it was in 2009, I think it was, or 2010. It was uh, when the healthcare debate was going on. And he said, I understand right now you guys are in the middle of a struggle for public health care here in the United States. He said, I think the best thing you could do for Honduras is to win free public health care here. Like, you need, to, you need to get a more democratic, more equal system here. In, in whatever way possible and, and take away some of the power from the oligarchs here because they're the ones, at the end of the day, holding up this whole thing, this whole project, uh, at least for this whole hemisphere. And so there's many, many fronts, and it's all one struggle. Um, in my opinion, I think people need to find... I don't want to tell people what to do. I want people to... Uh, if, if people want to email me, you know, uh, jesse at resistentiofthefilm.com, um, and say, I'm into this sort of thing, you know, what do you suggest? I'd be more interested in doing it that way. 